Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Thanks, Joe. If you guys have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Might have heard a little happy birthday shout out to Kennedy this morning. This pre- I know she appreciated that. Kennedy turned seven yesterday. And we have a seven year old. We've got a, a son that's turning 13 this year. And so Brandy and I are stocking up on a lot of Benadryl. And um, we used to be that family that was like, hey, you know, when we took long road trips as a kid, um, we didn't have these devices, these DVD players in our car. We're, we're just going to go. We're going to play road games. You guys are going to do crosswords and coloring pictures and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to have fun when we go on the road. And, and since that time, we've probably gone through about six portable DVD players. Um, we really embrace the headphones because parents don't care about what's fair and we don't care about what's just in the home. We just want quiet at times, all right? So I've got a 13-year-old. I've got... Please laugh with me. I'm just being facetious with you guys. 13-year-old, got a 7-year-old daughter, and she thinks she is, um, you know, Ariel from The Little Mermaid or all these kind of things. Love her to death. And her best friend, Kay Blythe, came to the party yesterday, which was great. So 7-year-old girls have no age restrictions on best friends, just so you guys know. Um... Just a couple housekeeping items. If you are praying along with us as a church, there's a prayer calendar in the foyer. Uh, Today we're praying 2 Timothy 2.15, which is one of my favorite verses, actually. Uh, Henry and I just went over this, actually, this week, which is, be diligent to present yourself to God as an approved workman who needeth not be ashamed, accurately handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. All right, so this morning we're we're praying all day today for our adult fellowship ministry, perhaps you know it as our flock group ministry at nine o'clock, and all of our ministries that are uh, coming together to study God's word, to keep each other accountable, and to make disciples. Again, if you haven't grabbed one of those prayer calendars, they're out in the foyer, please take one with you as you go and and just fold it and put it in the cover of your Bible. This is something that um, we want you to pray daily with us at TBC, and just thank you to the prayer team for that ministry. Also, we do have a, a Bill Biggs funeral is coming up. They wanted to wait until some of the COVID stuff was going through. So April 1st at New Life Ranch, um, which is a week from Thursday, Bill Biggs funeral will be at 3 p.m. New Life Ranch, the Flint Valley location. There's gonna be things there for kids. Those of you who know Bill or knew Bill from ministry here, his Sunday school ministry, his ability to engage with kids, with the youth kids was just exceptional. And uh, he will continue to have a, a lasting impression here at TBC. Again, that funeral is going to be April 1st at 3 p.m. hope you could join us for that. There's just going to be a private family dinner after that. Uh, so it's a little bit of a trip out there, but uh, everybody else is invited to the service. And um, Eileen Gray, uh, Eileen on Jesus, one of our sweet ladies, went to be with the Lord just last Sunday. I just saw Gary here not too long ago this morning. He was walking in. Her funeral is going to be April 8th, which will be after Easter, right here at 10.30 in the morning. So I just might want to mark your calendars. A um, couple of just awesome godly saints that are uh, our loss, not to have them with us anymore, but their gain uh, to be with the Lord in eternity and uh, the great hope that we have because of the gospel. What I want you to do this morning as we study through Galatians and begin um, in Galatians 1, 6 through, 6 through 10 this morning, is reach in your billfold and pull out a dollar bill. You guys all have a dollar bill? Just go ahead and, and reach in there and pull out. And I want to, um, there's amazing symbols and different icons on the dollar bill that are, it kind of, you look at it and you sort of shake your head like, what is that doing there, Right? Um, and so after you're done looking at the dollar bill, I'll have the deacons come around and collect all those from you guys. So, so it's totally, everybody's like, what are you doing? Just, man, if you want my money, give me a break. So this is, this is an interesting symbol. If you, if you turn to the back of your dollar bill, there's a pyramid there. This is, this is America. Right, what are we doing with an Egyptian pyramid? 
on the back of the dollar bill. The, the pyramid is, represents one of the most ancient civilizations that we know throughout all of history. It's a symbol. It stands for strength and stability. That throughout circumstances, through good times, through bad times, and through the greatest test of times, of time, the pyramid has remained standing. Of course, probably because they were constructed by the Hebrews, right? Great stone workers. Um, all the stone work that was done on the temple in Jerusalem, you kind of wonder where they got all the experience for that, right? It's probably, probably some Egyptian experience there. Um, above the uh, pyramid, you'll see a, a Latin phrase. It means something to the effect of God has favored our undertakings. God has been with this group of people as we have began this thing called America, the colonies. On the very base of the pyramid, though, the, the first level of, of stones that you can actually see, if you look really closely, you're going to see some Roman numerals, capital letters, some uh, M, M, D, L, X, X, something like that. Those, that's actually the Roman numeral for 1776, the year that the Declaration of Independence was signed. Do you know there's actually another place that those exact same Roman numerals appear in our nation's history? You guys know where it is? History test? Where else do you see these Roman numerals? If I do like this. Statue of Liberty, which is a better football play than it is a statue. However, there is a, the Roman numerals on the back of the tablet are 1776. This was the, this was the year we declared our independence um, from England, from the sovereign, right? The eye above the pyramid, of course, is, comes from Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Um, that was, actually stole it from Tolkien there, just totally kidding. Um, the pyramid is a, you know, it's, it's just one of those things you look at and you kind of say, wow, uh, really didn't think that that would be on the, on the back of the dollar bill. If you look over on the other side is the eagle, and the eagle has a shield in front of it, just an unsupported shield, nothing holding it on the eagle, seemingly just floats there. On the shield is, is a, just a pattern of stripes, exactly 13 stripes. Above the eagle, above the shield, you'll see 13 stars, again, representing the 13 colonies. What's, what's really interesting is the talons on the eagle. On one talon, you have uh, the olive branch, which represents peace. In the other talon, you have arrows, a bunch of arrows. Guess how many arrows there are? 13 arrows, right? So you got 13 stars, 13 stripes, and 13 arrows. The peace, the olive branch represents peace, the arrows represent war. And the nation's founders came together and said that there are certain things that are absolutely worth fighting for. And this tension between war and peace was actually one of the great things that founded the United States of America. Um, just, a, just a fun thing to do sometime is, is to look through this. You can find little details on money and different icons. Perhaps you've You've heard things about this before. This might not be the first time, but, but I wanted you to look at this, at this dollar bill at least to get started, and especially as I share this next quote, because there's a lot of counterfeits out there today, and there's a lot of counterfeit money that's circulating. And I want to share this quote about counterfeits. It goes something like this. This is from John MacArthur in his book, Reckless Faith. He says, federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits themselves. They study the genuine bills until they, listen to this phrase, master the look of the real thing. Then, when they see the bogus money, they recognize it and they recognize it immediately. You've probably heard something like that quote in the past. You've probably heard this as an illustration. I've heard it at least a dozen times. Um, but it, it's true. When counterfeiters, when people that are uh, raised up legal enforcers, the people that, that spot counterfeit money out there, when they are trained to spot a counterfeit bill, they spend their time studying not the counterfeits themselves, but studying the real thing. And at times what they have found is that human perception is quicker and actually more accurate than machines that are built to do the very same thing, spotting the counterfeits. In fact, counterfeit detectors memorize a, uh, a four-part plan 
when they look at bills to determine, is this the real thing? And people who exchange large quantities of money on a normal basis would probably know these four things. It goes something like this. Is this bill a counterfeit? Four things. Touch it, tilt it, look at it, look through it. Touch, tilt, look at, look through. Touch, tilt, look at, look through. And you can identify if it's a counterfeit. If you touch the money, does it feel like the real thing? Typically, counterfeit money feels softer and it has a more a waxier, a smoother finish than real money does. If you tilt it, look for the holographic symbols through the bill. There's the new, the new money that they started printing has that hologram that's uh, all the colors of the rainbow on the side. If you tilt it, look at it just right, you can see all the colors. You look at the bill by its broad descriptions, by its very details. Does this look like what I'm accustomed to seeing? And, and then you look through it because money has somewhat of a translucent quality to it. If you hold it up to the light, you can see right through it and, and see what's on the other side. In all of these things, all these four steps you do so that you can spot a counterfeit. Galatians 1, 6 through 10. The Apostle Paul spots a counterfeit. It's not a counterfeit that's related to a financial matter, it's a counterfeit related to a gospel matter. And this issue calls for the real gospel currency instead of a counterfeit currency. The Apostle Paul was a, a pioneer missionary to Galatia. He was one of the first, first guys who ever brought the gospel message to this region and to this group of people. They heard the true gospel and they placed their faith in Christ in a response to the message of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life on this earth, sent down from heaven, died on a cross, shed his blood on Calvary's cross for our sins, rose again on the third day. They heard that message, and they believed that message. However, it wasn't long before false teachers came in with a counterfeit gospel and started teaching something that wasn't true to the gospel that Paul had originally shared and taught with them. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Let's give the gospel the four part, the four steps to identifying a counterfeit this morning. Let's look at the gospel that Paul teaches. Let's touch it. Let's tilt it. Let's look at it and let's look through it and see if it measures up to the real thing to the true message of the gospel that we find in scripture. And here's where Paul is gonna start. It starts right here in Galatians 1, verse six. Look down at your text. The ESV here reads, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul begins with this verb, I am astonished. The King James Version says, I marvel. The New Living Translation, I am shocked. The Christian Standard Bible says, I am amazed. Interesting, Paul only uses this verb two times in the entire New Testament. Right here in Galatians 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 when he talks about the marvel, the amazement of the second coming of Christ in glory. The Greek lexicon, the BDAG, defines this verb as extraordinarily disturbed by something. Paul is extraordinarily disturbed by something that was going on in Galatia in these churches in Galatia. In fact, he is so disturbed and perplexed that he doesn't waste any time in his letter addressing this very fact, this foundational issue that was disrupting the churches there that he's, he planted and he started. See, Paul almost begins all of his New Testament letters just the way that Galatians begins. Paul, an apostle, sent by the will of God. He talks about who he's writing to, and then in almost every single letter, he's got a message of thanksgiving. I thank my God when I remember you, Philippian believers, in all of my prayers for the work that you are doing for the gospel. Even the Corinthians. You guys know that uh, Travis did a, a great little section on our last men's retreat about keeping up with the Corinthians, he called it. You guys know the Corinthian church had major, major issues. Lots of bad things that Paul had to address. Even when he writes 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he thanks God for them and for that church. Here in Galatia, there's absolutely no thanksgiving section. Paul has no time for thanks. He simply has time to take them to task on a very central foundational gospel issue. Really interesting. Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, he says this. 
This rebuke is a mild and tender word of rebuke from the Apostle Paul. Typically, I don't disagree with reformers who change the world, but I'm not saying, I'm going to say this is not mild and this is not tender. To skip the Thanksgiving section and go right to the issue, Paul has a major, major issue he needs to address here. And it is so major that he bypasses any word of gratitude and immediately goes right to the jugular. And part of the reason is because their desertion from the gospel, it happens so quickly. This is a relatively short amount of time. We can rightfully assume that from the time they first heard the gospel, the true gospel from Paul, to the time now when the gospel is being disordered was a very short amount of time. And these false teachers came in quickly. We don't have exact timetables, but we can absolutely assume that these believers were recently converted and they were turning to a different gospel. And, and folks, this is an issue not only in the first century in Paul's day, it is an issue in the 21st century in our day. Because a lot of churches and a lot of believers hear the gospel rightly. You've probably heard this definition of a church before. It comes right out of the Reformation. Uh, a, a gospel, a true church, is, one, is a church that proclaims the gospel rightly and administers the sacraments properly. That was the definition of ecclesiology that they came out of, largely, from the Reformation. A church, one of the main responsibilities for any local church is to proclaim the gospel rightly over and over and over again. And yet, at times and and far too often, we have churches, we have people that, that do have a true gospel, they believe in the real gospel, and then sometime later on in their existence, whether it's early, late, in the middle, somewhere in their Christian sanctification, their Christian life, they turn from this true gospel. You won't, you won't believe how many people I come across who tell me, Jared, I was, I was saved when I was in youth group. I heard the gospel message when I was in Awana. I haven't been to church for 30 years. It's, not, it's no longer worth my time to go to church. And so, I have a gospel that I'm believing, but it's not a gospel that encourages me to get plugged into a church and keep all the other accountability structures that are in place from the New Testament. That is, a, that is an absolute true gospel. And listen, I don't, I'm not suggesting here that Awana didn't have a true gospel or that youth groups don't have a true gospel, but they didn't have a full gospel if the people are believing what they believe and then stepping away from their responsibility to make disciples and to be discipled. They heard the true gospel message, but sometime later on in life, they turned from that gospel for something that was more comfortable and and less threatening to their Sundays, right? They didn't have to grow in God's word. They didn't have to join a church. They didn't have to be discipled. If Galatians says nothing else, at least in chapter one, it says this, stay involved in a local church so that you can hear the gospel rightly proclaimed over and over and over again. If you have a gospel that says it's important to believe, but it's not important, and your growth is optional for getting plugged into a local church and discipleship, that is a true gospel, but it is not completely true. It's what you call pick-and-choose Christianity. Take the parts that you like, and you hang on to those. You take the parts that you don't like, and you get rid of them. A Christian needs the gospel like people need a dentist. Regular check-ins are mandatory, right? Confession of sin is like taking out the garbage. Once in life is not enough. Weekly, we come. We see the things in our heart. Sin is blind, and so we don't see them. We see the things in our heart that haven't been touched by the gospel. This is one of the hardest things, is is the gospel is so simple, you you really can hear the message of the gospel in, in two or three short minutes, but the Um, the profound nature of the gospel you will continue to hear for the rest of your life so that every step of progress toward holiness and toward God will be a step of understanding the gospel at a deeper level, all because of the truth of the gospel. And so at TBC, we have a precedence of the gospel. Every ministry we have has its precedent in the truth of the gospel, and we say it over and over again. Colossians 2, verse 6, the same way you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. 
You received Christ through the gospel and by responding in faith. You walk in him by going back to the gospel and by walking in faith to Christ and to God. Remember, touch, tilt, look at, look through. Touch, tilt, look at, look through. Here's the first point in our outline this morning. Let's, touch, let's, let's talk about the touch of the gospel. And the touch of the gospel will tell us that it is always felt as grace, not religion or morality. The touch of the gospel will always tell us that its truth in the heart is always felt as grace, not religion or morality. This is such a difficult aspect of communicating the gospel today. Just about everybody, everybody that you would share the gospel with or everybody who thinks they know something of the gospel or the truth of the gospel, they almost automatically put it in the framework of morality. You're sharing the gospel with me today, Chris Cummings, because I'm not a moral person and you want me to be a better moral person. Almost instinctively, the predominant assumption of people is that they're hearing the gospel to be a better person and to increase in their moral life. But if that was the case, if, if the gospel was simply morality, then Christianity would be just one option among many. Um, if you become a Muslim, you would become a Muslim to be a better person. If you become a Hindu, you become a Hindu to be a better person, Shinto. Why would you adopt their religion? Ultimately, to be a better person, to be more moral. We are living in a, in a pluralistic culture, and pluralistic cultures will thrive with at least two things, encouraging a distinction between your private life and your public life. If you wanna, if you wanna expand and spread a, pro, a pluralistic culture, here's what you'll hear in that culture. There's a main difference between your private life and your public life. What you do in your private life, that's fine. You can do that. In your public life, in your work, in your career, in your times engaging in society, you cannot bring that into it. But keep the distinction between private and public. Or a pluralistic culture thrives on supporting the objectives of humanism and secularism. That the greatest need of mankind is simply to flourish, to become better, to achieve more things, and we do it all together. The gospel is not inclusive to increase the pluralistic culture. It's actually exclusive to decrease it. Grace is, is not the same as morality. Remember who your most moral people in the New Testament were, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you remember what Jesus said to them, woe to you, Pharisees. You travel long distances on sea and on land to convert a person to be a Pharisee, and you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Remember the elder brother and the prodigal son? He was earning his standing before his father by his good morality, by his good character, and he was as lost as the day is long. Grace is not morality, and grace is not religion. Just think about this for, ever, for a second. Every major religious founder, whether it's uh, uh, Muhammad, Buddha, again, um, Islam, Hindu, Shinto, any other religious, every other religious founder had a life that was marked by miracles. Okay, so one of the miracles of Muhammad was that he split the moon, and everybody saw it split. But miraculously, it came back together to the moon that we all see in the sky today is one of those great miracles that Muhammad achieved. Or, or Buddha, there's a, a tale of um, a twin miracle, they call it, where from the top half of Buddha came fire, and from the bottom half of his body came water. It was the, the twin miracle of Buddha. Nevertheless, it doesn't matter, and, and just bear with me on this, it doesn't matter if those miracles actually happened or not. It doesn't matter if they were true or not? Let me ask this question. Is a, a Muslim saved because Muhammad split the moon? No, they're not saved by, because of that. They're saved by following the five pillars of Islam, right? Or is a Hindu saved because of this, this twin miracle that Buddha achieved? No. You better get started on the eight steps on the path to enlightenment if you want to be saved under their framework. The grace of Christ is completely different. You are saved by the personal miracle 
of Christ's death and resurrection from the grave. Because of what he did, you are saved. Grace means that we are saved because of what God did, not because of what we do. And that's a distinction between Christianity and every other religion that is out there. It is one of the most foundational distinctions of grace and works, grace and religion. God did what he did so that we can be partakers of that. We cannot earn our salvation in the Christian standing. Christianity is the only religion that says, don't look inward. Instead, you look outward to Christ and to the truth of the gospel. It's the only one that says, stop trying and start trusting. You can't earn salvation on your own. It is absolutely impossible. And even if you lived a perfect life, guess what? You're still going to die because you're in Adam. So we need the grace of Christ to redeem us and to rescue us from the penalty of death and from sin. That's the true touch of the gospel. All right, number two in your outline is the tilt, the touch and the tilt of the gospel. Next slide for me, guys, if you guys don't don't mind back there. The tilt of the gospel. The gospel is not just something to believe. It is a worldview to embrace. The tilt of the gospel would say this. The gospel is not just something to believe. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a worldview to embrace. Now, a worldview, next slide, I got a definition for you, is a series of concepts working together to provide a frame of reference. A a worldview is a filter by which we see everything and understand everything that happens to us in life. You live your life today based on a worldview. It might be an assumed worldview. You might not even know what that worldview is, but everybody has a worldview, a lens by which they perceive the world and everything in it. A worldview is literally the lens by which we answer life's most basic questions. Who are we? Why are we here? What's wrong with the world? And how is what is wrong with the world made right? Every worldview at some level has to answer those basic foundational questions and they get down to the heart of everything. And Del Tackett uh, in his great work called The Truth Project, which is a study that we have here, I would encourage you to to watch it if you're involved with the Bible study group. It It is great DVD series. Del Tackett distinguishes between formal worldviews and personal worldviews. And he says this, a formal worldview is a set of truth claims that purport to paint a picture of reality. And so uh, formal worldviews have the isms behind it. A formal worldview would be Marxism, deism, secularism, humanism. Those are all very formal because people have written down the principles, the foundational thoughts on which those worldviews are built. But there's also personal worldviews. Personal worldviews are a little bit different because they are a set of truth claims not written in a book, but they're actually written on the heart. And the consistency of a a personal worldview is actually its inconsistency. Because everybody has their own personal worldview, there's not really one standard truth that people go back to. Again, the the gospel is not just something to be believed. It is a worldview to be embraced. And here's where the worldview is an issue for the Galatian believers. From what we know, the churches in Galatia had true believers. The Apostle Paul brought the message to them. The gospel was the lens by which they came into the kingdom of God, by which they had a relationship with God through Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. But they began to abandon the gospel by means of another kingdom, by means of a a different worldview, and they started living under a different framework. They took their eyes off the lens of the gospel, and they began to see life through the lens of the law and through religion instead. In other words, they made an initial decision for Christ, but God and the gospel did not impact their entire worldview. They still had things that they believed that they were hanging on to. And the word that Paul uses to describe this change that they experience is in verse 6 of Galatians 1. It says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting, is what your text is probably going to say. Some translations will say departing. The Greek there is metatithemi. literally means to change your mind concerning an allegiance. Galatian believers were changing their mind concerning their allegiance to the gospel and to Christ. 
the famous Greek philosopher that changed from his allegiance to the Stoic philosophers to the Epicurean philosophers, and he was known throughout history as being a turncoat. He shifted. Somewhere in time, he was believing the worldview of the Stoics, but he came now to believe the worldview of the Epicureans instead, which was a total, complete difference. And with the Galatian believers, at some point in time, they were believing the worldview of the gospel, but then they came to believe a different worldview in some aspects of their life, and historically would say they were turncoats. They shifted in their allegiance. When you consider the gospel as a worldview, we would say this. The gospel tilts everything that we see and how we understand all of life, who we are, what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world, what's wrong, how is what is wrong ultimately made right. In Christ's redemptive work on Calvary and his rule over us, the gospel presents us with a distinct worldview that no other religion and no other culture can embrace except for those who would call themselves Christian theists. So we have a, a worldview called Christian theism. That means this, we believe that God is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things by the word of his power. We believe that God is infinite in power. We believe that he is also personal and transcendent. And that there's actually the possibility that you can have a personal relationship with this infinite, powerful God through the person of Jesus Christ who came to die on a cross for you. That is, that is the worldview that we believe. We believe that God is good. He is sovereign and he is also good. And no matter what happens to us in life, we can always go back and we can trust God's goodness and his great character to us. That is the theistic Christian worldview that we embrace at Tulsa Bible Church that we embrace from Scripture. But why is their worldview changed here in Galatia? Why are they struggling with this worldview? The gospel was good enough at one point in their life, but it wasn't good enough for their entire life. Have you guys ever... You, you know this trend that so many teenagers, um, adolescents are coming to faith and getting involved in their church, and then they go off to college and they just don't care to get plugged in. The statistics on it are astronomical. It's really sad. Some people say 80, almost 90% of kids, that's their story. Why is that? Because the gospel didn't impact their worldview. It impacted their understanding of their home life, but it didn't impact the understanding of their whole life. And so the gospel needs to have a primary point of precedence over the way that we look and understand everything that happens to us. And if it doesn't, we are in danger of deserting the one true gospel and embracing something that is false, that's a counterfeit. And there could be nothing more dangerous for anybody than that. Remember the rich young ruler? I've kept all the commandments since I've been a youth. There's, there's one thing that you lack, Jesus says. Go sell all your possessions. Why? The worldview of the gospel didn't impact his financial life. It impacted everything else about him, but not his pocketbook. And so Jesus says, you've got to embrace a different worldview entirely that covers everything about you. When we touch the gospel, we see, we see that it is a gospel of grace. When we tilt it, we see that it is not just something to be believed, but it's a worldview to be embraced. Number three, when we look at the gospel. When you take a good look at the true gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what you will see. It is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Now, what I want you to do, I'm going to read through verses six through nine here in Galatians one. And I want you to highlight, underline, make a special reference to every time you see the word gospel in these verses, okay? Look down at verse six again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching a gospel, contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That accursed is anathema in the Greek. It is the strongest of condemnations that you can ever read and that Paul will ever give in his ministry. 
All those references to gospel, different gospel, gospel of Christ, another gospel, gospel contrary to one you received. The first time Paul uses the word gospel is in verse 6, and he says that there's only one. There's not many different gospels, there's actually only one true gospel. The second time he uses it, he begins to narrow its meaning. And he says, it's the gospel of Christ, which means this, the good news is a message about a person, Jesus, who is also God. The third time he uses gospel, he says it was delivered in a message that was preached. So the gospel is something that can be proclaimed, that can be spoken, and you can understand its truth. Now, at its core, the word gospel means this, good news, evangelion is the Greek word. And it's good news concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. News is not the same as advice. News is completely different than advice. When we say that the gospel is good news, we are at least affirming that it is historical. It actually happened in history. The events of the gospel took place at, in a time and space in world history that we know around the first century when Jesus walked the earth as a man. And all the creeds teach this. Uh, look at the Creed of Nicaea here on the screen. For us and for our salvation, this is your good Nicaean theology here. Why did Jesus come to the earth? He came for us. He came to save us, sinners. This is fascinating, just in the first line of, of this section about Christ. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Why is Mary in there? Because she was a real person who lived in history at a specific time in a specific place. And she, was, um, she became conceived of Christ miraculously and was made human. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why is Pilate up there? Because he's a historical figure. He's a real person. The, the creed writers here have said, we need to anchor the truth of Jesus in history. This is an event. This is a historical occurrence that actually occurred on the earth, and they are obsessed with it. He was suffered, and he was buried. And you know the place where he was buried before he rose again. The good news of Jesus Christ is, has a historical context. News is about actions and events that have been done. Advice is about how to live. News is something that has been done for you. Advice is something that you do. News is something that can be proclaimed about a person. Advice must be carried out by you. News is a message of grace. Advice is a message of morality, works, and you do this. It's a personal ethic. News asks us to hear and to believe the gospel. Advice asks us to turn a new leaf, dig down deep, look inside, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. The great Hollywood gospel. The news is good news because of what Christ did for us. If we had to do something to obtain everlasting life, it wouldn't be good news. That would be bad news. Because all of these questions follow that. How much good do I have to do? How often do I have to do it? What if I mess up at some point in life? Does that mean I lose on this bad news deal? The gospel is good news because it's about what Christ did for us. It's not about what we do for God. And again, the distinguishing element of Christianity from all of these other gospels that are out there is that God came down to the earth for us to do what we couldn't do for him. He had to do the work we have to believe it. We couldn't save ourselves. He had to come down and save us and redeem our hearts from sin. If the gospel is good advice, what happens in history doesn't really matter. But since it is good news, what happened in history matters for the truth of the gospel. We touch it, we tilt it, we look at it, and we look through it. Number four in your outline, the gospel demands the gospel doesn't just change your behavior. The gospel changes the heart. And when you look through the gospel, 
you see the penetrating work of the Holy Spirit that only God can do on our hearts. The truth of the gospel does what humans can't do, and it changes the heart, not just the actions. All right? Look down at verse 10. Paul writes, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. At its most basic level, Paul is distinguishing humanity into two different camps here. There are people who live to please men and to please people, and there's another group of people that live to please God above all else. At its most basic level, Paul is dividing all of humanity into people-pleasers and God-pleasers, those who live to please people and those who live ultimately to please God. And unfortunately, the very same actions can be carried out by those two different groups of people. You can do the very same actions, the very same things. You can show up to church, you can worship God, you can give to the church, you can be discipled, you can make disciples, you can go witness, you can go across seas, you can be on evangelism, you can be on mission, and you can do all of that to please God, or you can do all of it to please people. There's a, a really famous illustration about um, Spurgeon. Spurgeon gives this illustration, and he says, and he's trying to get to the heart of the gospel impacting the heart. <clears throat> and he says, he says this is a story. He says, once upon a time, there lived a, a poor, lowly farmer out in the, in the way outskirts of a kingdom. In fact, his property and his farm was the farthest out from the kingdom, on the very edge of it. And one day, this poor farmer, after sowing his seed in the ground, he's pulling up his carrots, and he's reaping the harvest. And he pulls out of the ground this great, massive carrot, this best carrot that he's ever grown his entire life. And he says to himself immediately, this carrot is so magnificent, it is so great, I'm gonna take it to the king. So he loads up his carrot on his horse, he goes right to the king, he comes before the king and he says, oh great king, I'm a lowly peasant farmer, I live on the way outskirts of the kingdom. But I have grown the most immaculate carrot that I have ever grown before and because you are the king, I wanna give to you this carrot. And the king is shocked. And he can see that this man's heart was bent to serve him and to love him, no matter what. So he says to him, he says, where's your property? Um, down here, 111th Street and 51st, right? He says, I own the property that's just adjacent to yours, and I want you to have it. It's now yours. This poor, lowly farmer becomes a rich farmer and grows produce like he has never grown before. Well, there's another guy that watches this whole thing happen, and he's not a farmer, he actually raises horses, and he sees what this man has done. And so he immediately goes back to his stables and he brings out his most beautiful, his strongest horse that he has in all of the stables, and he brings it to the king. He says, oh king, I live in your kingdom and, and I have raised the most beautiful, the strongest horse that I've ever raised before and I wanna present it to you as a gift. And the king saw right through it. He took the horse from the man and he said, thank you, be on your way. Because he knew his heart was in the wrong place the whole time. The first man brought a gift to the king expecting nothing in return. He loved the king for the king. The second man brought a gift expecting something for it. He didn't love the king for the king, he loved the king for the king's stuff for the benefits of the king. And that, at its heart, is another gospel that is working your way to heaven. Uh, look down at verse seven again here. Paul writes, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and they wanna distort the gospel of Christ. There are some who are bringing horses when they should be bringing carrots. There's some whose heart has been impacted by the true gospel. There's other people who just want stuff. They want the benefits of the king. A false gospel aims to please man. It is very man-centered. A true gospel aims to please God. It is God-centered and Christ-centered. A false gospel might have an effect on the head, but it never reaches the heart. The true gospel transforms not just the head, but it transforms the heart as well. Everything about us. What do we do with, uh, with this gospel? Uh, just a couple points of application as we close. 
Number one, when leaders pervert the gospel, the members will desert the church, and they'll desert, desert God as well. If the leaders pervert the gospel, the members will follow by deserting God and also the church. Look back again at Galatians 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Um, desertion was, most, most commentators think that Paul is using a military metaphor here. What do you call it when a, a military man goes, goes apart from his commander? He's, he goes AWOL. He is absent without leave, and there is big punishment and big crime for such a thing. The believers at the churches in Galatia were in danger of going AWOL, deserting God for a false gospel. And while they have a personal responsibility, there's something to say here for the leaders of the church as well. Remember what we said last week. Galatians is one of the earliest of the New Testament letters. Were there elders in the church of Galatia? Why didn't Paul come and address these guys? Hey, Alan, your responsibility is to protect the gospel as an elder in this church. What happened? Why'd you let these guys come in and start preaching a false gospel? I would help hold the church leaders responsible, and they need to be called to task just as much as, as the other believers that are believing this stuff. Where are the elders? By the time we get to Timothy and Titus, you hear Paul urging and begging for leaders to be established as he plants churches right away. Remember his words to Timothy, remain on at Ephesus so that you may charge them not to teach a different doctrine not to start believing in a false gospel. Titus 1, verse 9, hold firm to the trustworthy word so that you may give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke, rebuke those who contradict it. Because if you get this wrong, it messes up all of your worldview. You have to be solid on doctrine and you have to be solid with the gospel. As with the leadership, go so the people. Acts and Paul's last message to the Ephesian elders. Pay attention to yourself and to your doctrine, to your teaching, so that you might protect those who come after you. Fierce and savage wolves will rise up, not from outside of the congregation, from inside of the congregation. You want to distort the true gospel. Number one is this. When the leaders pervert the gospel, the members will desert it. Number two. Avoid, abandoning gospel theology is synonymous with abandoning Christ personally. Abandoning gospel theology is the same thing as abandoning Christ personally. Again, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. That is the person of Christ. People say this um, all the time. It doesn't matter what your doctrine is. Show me you're a Christian by the way you live your life. And the question, and my response to that is this, is that a doctrine that you want me to believe? That it doesn't matter what my doctrine, it just matters how I live my life? You have already just slipped into taking a doctrinal issue and making it a preference issue the second that you even mention something like that. The statement itself is doctrinal. And when somebody says, I don't care about your doctrine, I care about how you live, that in itself is justification by works, an infringement on the truth of the gospel, which is justification by faith, trying to earn your way to heaven, and that's not what we believe of the true gospel. Galatians, again, 2,000 years, 2,000 years ago, this ancient book was written, and yet we deal with these gospel issues on a daily basis today. Do we not? And we face this, this stuff in the culture all of the time. That's why it is so important for us as leaders at TBC, pastors, as members here, to turn our gaze and our attention to the truth of the gospel every step of our Christian life. It is so important for you to be in the word and to rightly proclaim the gospel. Right actions start with right doctrine. Right doctrine does not start with right actions. If you get that backwards, you will slip into a works theology. 
The truth of the gospel is, is so very simple, yet it is so profound. God sent his son, the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died and he went to a cross on Calvary, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Three days later, God vindicated the payment of his sin by raising him from the grave. And the one who knew no sin took sin on on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That simply believing in Jesus, we have everlasting life, and it is faith plus nothing. It is not God did his part, we do our part. It is not now you're a moral person and so live this way to earn a right standing before God. It is God did it all for us, every last piece of it. He forgave us all sin, past, present, and future. And if he didn't forgive all sin, then I've got a big problem, Gary's got a big problem, everybody in this room has a big problem. Because if there's a chance that we can mess it up, we're gonna mess it up. (laughs) But if Christ paid for all of it, all that's left for us to do is to respond in faith, to give thanks, and to live our life under a whole new worldview that is framed by the truth of the gospel. That's what we believe at TBC, and if you share this precedent of the gospel, I pray that you'll come along with us and share this message throughout Tulsa and throughout the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, again, we thank you for the chance that we have this morning to go through Galatians. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I pray that the gospel would impact not just our life of coming into faith with you and, and being discipled and making disciples, but it would affect everything else about us. Lord, help the truth of the gospel to penetrate our hearts in the areas where it hasn't yet. Reveal those things to us. And let us live by the truth of the gospel every step of the way. We thank you for Christ. And we pray all of this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.